Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, man. I'm looking on Facebook on my phone here real fast as I'm watching the time go. <clears throat> and uh, three years ago today, uh, we ended up doing a fun little uh, project where Gabby had to make a, a basically like a, a diorama kind of thing of a city, a major city, and she chose Seattle. And so we had built, I don't know if we can get that on there, uh, Grandma Sandy and, and Grandpa Steve and Gabby and I got together and we all uh, found ways to help her make this cute little diorama of Seattle. That was fun. That was a good time. Good memories. Good memories. Three years ago. Wow. Time flies. Time flies. I think Josh did that. Yeah, last year. Wow. I don't know. He did a farm. That was fun too, but this was this was fun. Good memories. Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. I see a couple people on there. Cheers up. Um, you might notice we have a slightly different uh, background here. Let's see. So we have moved this into my studio, into one section of my studio. And so it's a, a little different background, but it's nice because I essentially I was I was trying with this whole uh, this whole situation, I was trying really hard to, um, work close to the family. So if the kids needed help on something, they didn't feel like they had to bother dad while he's working in his studio. And, and, uh, it backfired, <laughs> it backfired. And, uh, essentially I was in their way as much as they were in my way. And, uh, so we, we just decided all around that it was, it was best if, um, I moved, into my studio. And so, uh, I had a, a giant mixing console on this desk. And so I cleared off this desk and have set this up so that we, we have a nice spot to, to sit and to work on this stuff. So, yeah, well, Hey, I hope you guys have your Bibles handy, have notepads ready to go pen and paper. Um, feel free to screenshot if you need to do screenshots on this for the day. Uh, we've got a lot of information to cover. It's not going to take forever. This isn't going to be one of the hour long ones, uh, but we're also not going to go through a lot of the scripture today. We're going to go over more of the history and understanding what was going on um, and why this happened at all. Okay. So there's, there's some big questions there. Hey, Boots. We have a, a company, the kitty, um, trying to get out. That's fun. Uh, so we're going to spend a little bit more time in the what's and the why's before we get into the actual word today. So uh, get ready to dig in, though, because we've got a lot going on. So we are looking at 1 John. This is the study one of 1 John. This is the introduction. And we'll do that here. Oh, let me click into the right portion. Here we go. The who, when, where, and why. So this is written by John, which would be the Apostle John, who is the author of the Gospel according to John and also Revelation. Uh, location, this is written in or around Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, Okay, which we know that from last study in 1 Peter. Date of the writing is a little bit more difficult to pinpoint, though, so this is a, a little bit more of a range. So we know that John left Jerusalem prior to Rome destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD, and it's believed that he continued his apostolic ministry in and around Ephesus. Now, we say in and around because Ephesus was huge. Uh, Ephesus was literally second to Rome throughout the Roman world, okay? It was absolutely 
ginormous. It was it was major. If New York City was Rome, uh, this is Boston or L.A. It's it's huge, absolutely huge. It is the place to be. And so he's in or around Ephesus when he's writing this. Um, and early post-apostolic figures, so Polycarp and Papus, roughly just after 180, they cite from 1 John with a lot of their writings. So we know that it happened before 180, and it happened after 70 AD. So most hold this to be written somewhere between 80 and 95 AD. Now, I say that, but it actually gets narrowed a little bit further uh, because of a couple other things. Most say it's between 85 and 95. So a lot of theologians have tossed their hands up and said, man, eh, 90's fair. So we say 90. So this is written, we'll just go with somewhere between, somewhere right around 90 AD. Um, okay, so this is a little bit of a later epistle. This is a little bit later, especially when they're coming from the apostles, right? So this is a later epistle. Um, the audience was throughout Asia and Asia Minor because he was writing uh, essentially to the people around where he was. And the type of writing is a little bit interesting. So this is a blending of preaching and letter, although the early Greek uh, translators recognized that from the type of writing and the, the type of language that that was being used here that John was using that um, it's really a letter. It's not really a sermon, although it does get kind of preachy at times. So this, this really is a letter, even though it starts different and it's handled different throughout. It is a letter and this has some, some circular or what they would call symphonic thought patterns. This is not a linear writing. This is not, here's this point. We're going to discuss it. Now we're moving on to the next point. He'll actually bring an idea, leave it, go on to something else, and then he'll come back. Um, it is a little bit of a wandering, but he brings some amazingly good points in this. Now, the theme. This is about fellowship and warning against false teachings. Now, with the false teachings in earlier epistles, so things that are written earlier than this. We typically see false teachings being a reference to a, a group known as the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers, in a nutshell, claimed that since Christianity came from Judaism, right? Jesus was a Jew, right? Hey, so since Jesus was a Jew and, and Christianity came from Judaism, that Gentiles, anybody who wasn't a Jew, needed to convert to Judaism and meet a certain set of standards of Judaism before being able to convert into Christianity. So essentially people had to become Jewish before they could become a Christian. And so we see writings all over the place about how that's not accurate. Whoa, it doesn't matter if you're a Greek or a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, right? That that's not what this is about. So there's writings all over the place about that. But this were a little bit later on, uh, John was starting to see development of a different mindset. And this is a mindset that actually wasn't necessarily uncommon. This is something that was seen throughout uh, the Jewish tradition as well. People in this region were blending um, Greek dualism, right, uh, being uh, polyistic, polytheistic viewpoints, and Eastern mysticism with Judaism. And this was known as Gnosticism. Well, now 
they're doing it with Christianity. And so we're a couple generations down and they're starting to do this within Christianity. And, and John see this, sees this and is trying to nip it in the bud saying, whoa, let's get rid of this before it becomes a problem. Unfortunately, it becomes such an issue that 2000 plus years later, we're still dealing with this today. Okay. So this is, this is something that hasn't ended. Uh, but this is something that he's trying to warn against from an early, early day, uh, which was a little bit after Christ. Okay. So this is what would be known as proto-Gnostics, which would be like a prototype, an early form of Gnosticism, right? And proto-Gnostics were uh, an early form of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, or Greek term gnosis, which is where we get this, comes from knowledge or insight. Gnosis means knowledge or insight. And it's a blending of that Greek dualism and a polytheistic view with Eastern mysticism while being filled with Christian sayings and teachings. Now, in a nutshell, we're going we're gonna to go a little bit more into this here in a minute, but in a nutshell, basically their saying was an all good God could not have created a bad existence and a bad planet. Their belief is that all material, all physical is evil and bad and impure. And the only, the only the spirit is good. And so since an all good deity and all good God couldn't have done this, a lesser deity must have. Since good God couldn't have, a different God must have. Uh, I mean, it makes logical sense. Unfortunately, there's one God. And so this doesn't fit. Like, you know, you can't put that square peg in a round hole. It doesn't work. So Gnostic Christian writings, because it did become and start to take root and they were trying to, to get this to really fit. And they viewed it as being legitimate form of Christianity. And so you get Gnostic writings and Gnostic Christian writings for an example would be like the gospel of Thomas, which we've just found a manuscript in 1945. Um, that's when we first started to really realize about that gospel of Thomas. Now, the, God, the Gnostic writings and the doctrine, these were deemed heretical at ecumenical, excuse me, <laughs> ecumenical councils, and, and they're not included into our biblical canons. Now, I want to pause here for a second. The ecumenical councils rejected and deemed these Gnostic ideas and writings as heretical. This is Western church. The Eastern church actually followed a totally different path line. And so we've lost, oh man, nearly uh, a millennia and a half of, of um, Eastern church history. And it's, it's just gone. There were multiple, in fact, two forms of uh, Orthodox churches that formed in the East that were as big and powerful as the Catholic church ever became right? And and we've lost a lot of that. And inside of those, there was a bit of this Gnostic style mindset and this Gnostic writings. And we could, we could go over a lot of different history on that. It's absolutely fascinating, fascinating stuff. But the point is that there are different councils that happened in different parts of the world, right? And these ecumenical councils were... Um, theologians of the day. These were the great minds of Christianity of the day, and they were coming together to determine what types of doctrine really fit with the word uh, and which books fit together. Like there are books that don't seem to fit. They, they don't coincide with one another. And so they have pulled them away in these different writings. And to give you uh, an idea here, there are different canons, different councils develop different canons. Okay. And point out the Catholic and the Orthodox have, their canon has seven additional books. 
other than the Protestant Bible. So the Protestant Bible is missing seven books that the Catholic Bible has. So there are different canons and there are different beliefs on this. So it's not, not necessarily a fully unified front on that part. For the most part, yes, but it's just, it gets into finer details at that point, okay? Now, finishing up on the theme. Again, this is about fellowship and to warn against false teachings, those proto-Gnostics. And to do this, John calls the readers back to the basics of Christianity. When people tend to try to make things too complex, that's where we start seeing issues, is when people draw things out into this crazy world, he, it's easier to get things to settle back in when we pull it back to what it's really about and back to the basics of Christianity. And so John has this call to do this. And it's about true doctrine. Uh, understand true doctrine, what we know, and obedient living, because as we've learned, our life matters. How we live our life matters. And in passion devotion, and in passion devotion to living for God and for living for each other, right? Okay, so that's the theme. This is what this is about, okay? Let's go into some of this a little bit more deeply. Let's talk about John for a moment. John is considered to be either the youngest or at least one of the youngest of the apostles. Born roughly 6 AD, died right around 100 AD, some say 103, but right around 100 AD, which means when he wrote this, he was likely mid-80s. If he wrote this at 90, he's 84, if he wrote it at 90 AD, he's 84 years old. So he is an older gentleman, an older apostle, writing and instructing and giving warning to the younger generation. Now, I want to pause here for a moment, okay? Christ was crucified, and I, just to put this in perspective, Christ was crucified roughly 33 AD. Paul first entered Ephesus. We see in Acts that Paul first enters Ephesus just as a passing through, basically, in 52 AD and says, hey, I have to make it to a feast. Sorry, guys, I got to leave. And he literally just says, and they left them there. And so he left to go to this feast. And he, on his third missionary trip, he goes in to Ephesus and spends roughly three and a half years in Ephesus. And that's at 55 AD. So Christianity started in Ephesus at 55 AD. That was when it really started. Now, we have reports that he found people who were baptized by John the Baptist, but they didn't know about the Holy Spirit. They didn't really know about Jesus. They were baptized by John the Baptist. They weren't, didn't know Jesus's teachings. And so really, Christianity didn't start in Ephesus until Paul was there in 55 AD. So even at 55, 55 to 90 or 95, when this is, we're talking 45 or 50 years. And we know a lot can happen inside of a church, a lot can happen in 45 or 50 years. And it is a huge metropolitan area. This is a huge region, right? This is just a gigantic area with a massive population, blending multiple different ideas and belief systems, which is why we start seeing this proto-Gnosticism start to happen, as people are blending these ideas and trying to get this in. So he's trying to teach a second or a third generation out and bring them back to the basics of Christianity. And so we see an older John speaking to that younger generation, trying to bring them back to the reality of what Christianity really is and what Jesus was really teaching. Okay. So his writings do include the gospel according to John, the three epistles, John 1, John 2, and John 3, and the book of Revelation. Now, Ephesus. Ephesus is located in West Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. 
You can see it on both of these. Uh, Ephesus is near the modern city of Izmir, and it is across the Aegean Sea from Athens and Corinth. So if you look at the top map, um, you'll actually see uh, Athens and Corinth right there, and it comes across. Now, I have said a couple times that it was second to Rome, and I really mean that, and historians are very, very clear on this. Rome was the epicenter. It was absolutely huge. It was the capital. But if there was to be a second capital, it would have been Ephesus. If you look at the bottom map, you actually see where it's right in a nice little cove area, and it's a nice port area, and it was massive. We're talking amphitheaters, we're talking a massive port, we're talking huge trade center, and a lot of different goods coming through and going out from this area. This was a massively used region, and it was a major part of the Roman world. So this is a big spot. It is not like somebody just ran through a village and all of a sudden, okay, here it is. No, 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 no. Ephesus was a major player in the Roman world and actually became a major player in the Christian world as well. Now, time frame. This is 80 to 100 AD. Again, still, we're going to narrow it down to the writing to being probably closer to 90 AD. Okay, so 90 AD is when this is happening, but we're going to look at the broader spectrum because a lot happened and so many different things changed in this 20-year period that it's important to note what was going on slightly before and during and then even slightly after this was written because there was a lot of things changing. So Ephesus obviously was under Roman rule, which we talked about. Uh, and it was transitioning between two different dynasties. We were transitioning between the Flavian dynasty of rulers and what is known as the five good emperors. Now, the five good emperors are known as the five good emperors because of the amount of peace and prosperity that they brought to Rome. It was an incredibly peaceful time and an incredibly prosperous time for Roman rule. It was a beautiful time frame, and it was relatively peaceful for the Christians under the Roman rule. Now, mind you, the Christians were still a minority group and a very small minority group at this point, okay? We're not talking too far into this, and it is a small minority group inside of Rome. And even here inside of Ephesus, it is a small minority group. We're not talking minority group like today in the United States, where the government is trying to make minorities feel like they're part of the majority and giving them special benefits. No, 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 no. There is nothing like that. And by the way, I'm not trying to make a point in saying things like that minorities get special deals. I'm just trying to say that it's not like today. Minorities aren't trying to, people aren't trying to give them a leg up and to help them out. Most people were trying to get rid of them. By saying that this is relatively peaceful, I'm saying that the government wasn't trying to get rid of them. Not saying that the people were not trying to get rid of them. The government was not seeking them out to out them and get rid of them. It was still difficult for them to buy and sell. Okay, They, they had a hard time getting goods, buying things, selling things, getting work. They had to prove it. Remember, Peter was talking about, hey, this God is going to purify you throughout this, and he's going to strengthen you, and he's going to put you into this community and give you firm roots into this community so that you can blossom and things can happen. And this is starting to happen. So we're seeing the fruits of this, that God has worked through this and is starting to make things easier and better for them. Okay. Now, these rulers and this changeover in the dynasties is a big deal. In fact, some accounts of the later Flavian rulers 
They claim that they may have secretly or otherwise converted to Christianity. If they didn't convert, they at least were enamored with the concept of Christianity, of a man coming, you know, God coming in man form to live a perfect life and to die for your sins and to teach peace to teach love and to teach peace and to not try to do wrong to people and to even turn your other cheek and to go the extra mile for these other people. This enamored these rulers and they fell in love with it. And so they weren't trying to destroy Christianity, unlike Nero, what we were seeing before in Peter. Okay. Now, Trajan, who was the second of the five great, or excuse me, the five good emperors, and he ruled from 98 to 117 AD, he took it to the next step. Uh, he had a report from one of his generals saying, hey, we have people trying to uh, cause issues and cause problems for these Christians, these Christian groups. And there's actually a report of him saying, they seem like a harmless bunch. What should I do with them? And Trajan actually comes out and responds to this with an order saying, do not seek out the Christians and don't punish them unless you can prove it. Like if they, if someone makes a claim against them, don't touch them unless there is actual proof of this happening, which was a big deal because with minorities, you didn't necessarily have to prove it. And a lot of times the way that these governments were ran, if it was a spiritual matter, if it was a religious matter, they would leave it to the courts. And since Christianity was seen as an offshoot of Judaism, a lot of times they would push this under the Jewish court systems. And so the Jews were really pushing against a lot of this. And so there was a lot of tension going on. And Trajan actually comes out and says, whoa, do not punish them unless there is evidence and proof. So this is a turning point inside of Christianity to where we see that they're starting to get some rights along the way. They're starting to get recognized along the way. And some of this happens because of their rightful living, the things that they're doing, showing the world that there's a reason for them to be there. Does this make sense? I hope it's making sense. You guys getting anything out of this? Gnosticism. Okay. Gnosticism. We're gonna go just a little bit deeper into Gnosticism because it's a little bit more to grasp. We're not going to go super deep, but get enough information to where we, we know kind of what's going on, okay? Gnosticism. Is Greek gnosis is for knowledge or insight. Is they value seeing things that others miss, and that's why this is called Gnosticism or Gnosis, okay? They value seeing that. They are always looking for that hidden meaning, hidden meaning, right? Uh, what was that movie, Tom Hanks? Um had longer hair. He was, uh, angels and demons, I think was the second one. Anyway, um, is, is very much kind of that Gnostic mindset. They're looking for that hidden piece and that hidden meaning. Um, so trying to find these extra pieces. Now, some of their grabbing points into making sense and saying that clearly Christianity falls into this and there's, there's hidden things where Jesus was saying things like, let those who have ears hear ah, clearly there's something hidden here. So we need to discover what that hidden meaning is. But the problem is they're a polytheistic group. Gnosticism believes in multiple gods and multiple deities, whereas Christianity does not. And they believe that the supreme God, their supreme deity is distant and non-interactive. It just sits there. It just is which is not the Christian God. The Christian God is very active and very in control and very happening in our lives. 
Okay, they also believe that evil, that uh, material, everything physical, are flesh. The flesh is evil. So your flesh ultimately is a symbol of evil. And the spirit is ultimately a symbol of good. And then that's all it is. The spirit is all good. And the flesh, the material, is all bad every time. And since material, physical flesh is always bad, that supreme God couldn't have made it. And it couldn't have made that evil material world. And therefore, a lesser deity had to have done this. That's their standpoint. And that you have to escape. It's almost like a, a, a cylindrical. It's a cycle system. And you have to escape the material through exiting by your soul leaving. And in order to leave, you have to have that special knowledge. You have to have that special insight. You have to find that hidden key so that you can leave. Whenever I think of this, it's uh, so immature, but I can't, I can't help it. I love this. Uh, it makes me think of Bill and Ted. And I think Bill and Ted's excellent adventure when they get to heaven and they're looking for, uh, they're looking for, Oh, what is it? They're looking for the alien anyway to help them build it. And, and they have to get past the gate and they're asking, what is the meaning of life? And they're like, I don't know. What do we say? Uh, every rose has its thorn. And <laughs> so stupid. Sorry. But that's what I always think of when I'm thinking of Gnosticism. How do you equate this? What is this hidden message? And you have to answer this question to get in. Well, God wanted it to be so evidently clear that he came to earth in the form of a man to give you the perfect example of life, to teach you and show you and tell you how to live and to live that perfect life and to die, resurrect, proving that he's conquered death and, and is above this and then ascends into heaven. He wanted it so crystal clear, not hidden, that he came himself on earth to physically show us. So if you want to know the, the secret to this is no Jesus. There you go. Done. I guess we're done for the day. No, but that is the secret is to just know Jesus. But they get this concept because again, Jesus says things like, let those who have ears hear. And while he would teach through parables, which is confusing and we, nobody really knows. And, and he says things like the, the path is, is narrow and few will get through the gate. And so that clearly means that, that there's more to this. We have to know what this hidden piece and this hidden gem is. And it's not. Jesus was just being very plain with some of that and saying, most people are going to ignore this. Most people aren't going aren't gonna to get it. They're not going to go for this. They're going to believe something else. They're going to go a different path. Okay. And, and as far as the teaching in parables, I just want to point out a little tiny bit of history here. Parables is how rabbis taught. That was the normal teaching mechanism. That was not Jesus being awkward and weird. That was how rabbis taught their messages. They would read and they would teach through parables. Anyway, moving on. So that is Gnosticism in a nutshell. It's polytheistic. They're all about finding that hidden knowledge, that hidden information, and that we have to escape the evils of the flesh by gaining this little bit of knowledge that has to be hidden somewhere, okay? That's Gnosticism. Now, we're going to get into this. We're going to get into the actual text. And I told you we're not going to be an hour long. Still got a little bit to go. Uh, we're at about 25 minutes of this. So um, so we're, we're good. We're doing good. John 1, we're just going to do 1 through 4. Just this nice little introduction where he just starts off, okay? 
We're going through the English Standard Version today. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Okay, before we go to this next slide, I want to point out, this does not sound like an introduction to an epistle. These typically start with, hi, my name is, how are you? Maybe not quite like that. It would be today's standard. But this seems to be starting and very reminiscent to John, the, the gospel of John, the gospel according to John, which says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, not anything made that was made. Was not anything made that was made. Excuse me. In him was life and the life was the light of men that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is very reminiscent to this. This introduction here is very reminiscent to the introduction to the gospel according to John. Although here, as you're seeing, John is discussing his and the apostles' firsthand accounts with Jesus rather than the lineage of Jesus, which is what we were getting in the gospel, right? He's talking about their fellowship with, with he, Jesus, and the Father, okay, and in longing that the readers have fellowship with them and with the Lord. So he's bringing this out and he's talking and saying, hey, this whole point is for us to have fellowship. We need to have this fellowship. Okay, This is very reminiscent to that. So let's look here. Let's dig into this. Verse one. There's a lot in verse one. That which was from the beginning. Now, personally, I have always seen this, and I'm most comfortable reading this as the beginning. It would be the beginning of creation, as what he's talking about in the gospel as well. John 1, 1, in the beginning. Because that is where John's mindset clearly is from. Because when he speaks, he speaks in that holistic mindset, that whole realm, that whole piece. And so I view this as this is the beginning. In, that which was in the beginning of creation. It could easily mean, however excuse me, the beginning as in Jesus's birth or the beginning of Jesus's ministry, right? It could be any of the which, but any which way, I see it as creation, but any which way actually fits and doesn't deteriorate or alter this text, okay? So it's okay to see that, okay? So that which was from the beginning, which we, we, who are we? We would be him and the apostles, him and the rest of the apostles, or it could also be, the early followers in the original church, like the early, early, early church, right? Because again, he's in his 80s. He's in his mid-80s speaking two generations out potentially to people. And he's trying to bring them in. And he's saying, look, the church, we, the church that was right there with him, okay, we, this early bunch, but most likely probably the apostles, specifically saying the apostles, the group that actually followed him on earth. 
okay? We have heard, okay? Which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So heard, seen, touched. He's talking about your senses, right? He's talking about the senses. We have, we've heard him with our ears. We've seen him with our eyes. We physically touched him. And if it wouldn't have been awkward, we might've even tasted him, but that might've come off awkward, right? And so we've heard him, we've seen him, we've touched him, okay? We've touched him. He's talking about the physical embodiment, right? Remember, this is going, he's preparing a whole letter about don't get into looking for just hidden. Jesus was real. He was real. So he's talking about the physical embodiment. Jesus was physically here and reassuring that. Okay. And that he, John, and the others, the other apostles, were all firsthand witnesses of this real person. God really came to earth. This is all real. Okay. And then he ends this, this verse with concerning the word of life. Now, some translations capital word, capitalize word of life. Some translations don't. ESV does not capitalize the word of life. New King James does capitalize the word of life. Now, the word of life we will see as Jesus. First of all, we see in John 1, uh, the, the gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, right? And there it is capitalized, okay? Because the word was God. The word was Jesus. And life, if we look at John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, okay? So Jesus is the word, and Jesus himself says, I am the life. So the word of life, it compiles together and becomes the word of life as Jesus is the word of life, okay? Verse number two. The life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Okay, this life that he's referring to is, again, Jesus. He's, again, pointing out Jesus. So he's saying the word of life, and now that life, Jesus, still was made manifest or physical. So he was physically brought here to earth through the birth of a virgin, okay? birth from a virgin, physically made manifest here for us. And this reiterates again that he has seen it, he saw him, he touched him, okay, and he's now testifying about it, right? We have seen it, we saw Jesus, and we are testifying and proclaiming that life to you, and that he was made manifest to us, okay? Now, he's pulling this from Hebrews 1, or he's not necessarily pulling this, excuse me. He's not pulling this from Hebrews 1, but we're going to go to Hebrews 1 to look at this as well, uh, which is, again, and keep in mind, uh, here in 1 John, he's preparing this letter against Gnosticism, right? Warning against Gnosticism, but Hebrews 1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Okay, this is all very tying in together, right? Okay, this life, Christ, the word, was made manifest. We've seen it again. We've seen it. And now we're testifying and proclaiming to you this eternal life because that life doesn't end, right? Jesus's life doesn't end, which was with the Father, Originally, right? He was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Moving on to three, that which we have seen and heard, 
we proclaim also to you. Okay, seen and heard. Again, pointing out this isn't hidden. This is not hidden. Now remember, against Gnosticism, looking for this hidden piece, saying we've seen him, we've heard him. He's already said this a couple times. In the very introduction, he keeps reiterating the same points. We have seen him. We have heard him. We have touched him. This is not hidden. Jesus is not a hidden thing. He is real. He was physical. This is not a mind game. This is not an intellectual quest only. He was real. Okay? He is really at the right hand of God currently. So God made himself fully visible and known, and he came in the flesh. And he says, we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now, I want to point out here, he's taking this to a level. He's saying, this is a call, okay, to share the gospel. I am continuing my call to share the gospel, okay, because I'm proclaiming this to you. I am continuing the gospel, but it is not solely for the sake of saving souls. That is a portion of it, and it is a great portion of it. But there's more to it than just the salvation. This isn't just fire insurance, okay? This isn't just your get-out-of-hell-free card. There is more to this than that. And so I'm doing this so that you may have fellowship with us. Because it's for the sake of fellowship as well, that you can be with us together, bonding people together. Okay? So it's salvation, and now it's bonding people together. But then he takes it even further, and he says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this bonding is now bonding people together in Christ, and bonding in that fellowship, joining in a union together with the Father and the Son. So not only is this for the people, okay? I'm sharing this so that you hear the word, so that you're saved, but then also so that we are bonded together, but we're bond, I'm already bonded with God and, and with Jesus, right? The Father and the Son. But now you can bond with me and you also are going to be bonded with the Father and the Son. And that's the whole point is it brings everything and all of it together. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, so the fellowship is a major portion of this belief, of our belief, of our faith. Fellowship is a big part of this. We are to be together. And right now we are to be together at a distance. Like we be a good neighbor, stay over there. That's fine. But we've got, we've got internet. We've got ways we can do this. We've got phones. We can talk. We can old school write letters. We can do the video conferencing. We can do all sorts of stuff, right? So we're, we're doing what we can, but we're still being together. And we're doing things like this right here to where we're learning and we're growing together. Okay. And then verse four, he wraps this up, this quick little section, this little prologue, right? He wraps this up by declaring a purpose. Now he declares a purpose a few times throughout this, this letter. Okay. But right now he's declaring a purpose and we are writing these things so that our joy. So the purpose here is joy, right? He's declaring a purpose of joy, of joy. Our joy may be complete because as believers, our joy is what? It's in God. Our joy is in God and through God. And we see this in John 15. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy be in you and that your joy may be full. And we see this in Psalms. We see this in Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay. Our joy is in God. And we are to be in God, and that is where our joy comes from and stems from, right? 
Now, I want to note here this hour, okay, because this can seem like if we read this in English and we look at this in an, uh, in an American mindset, this sounds pretty selfish, writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Like, we are writing these things so our joy. Like, you can complete our joy, and then you can go do something and, and find other people so that then your joy can be complete. Okay, this this is a that is not the the right way to be reading this this joy. Okay, so the Greek for hour, early manuscripts of this, there were two different sets of manuscripts, and some of these manuscripts said our joy, and some of them said your joy. The Greek for hour in this sense is an actual inclusive hour, meaning all hour. So that's not my joy. It's not your joy. It's all of our joy. This was for the joy for John and the apostles, but also the joy for the readers. It was the joy for all. It was a joy for the body, right? Because the Bible tells us that when someone's saved, like there's a party, right? They celebrate. Yes, they celebrate when people come to Christ. There is joy in bringing into the body. When the body grows, there is joy. We get joy when others join into that fellowship, that fellowship between us and God and God and us and God and them and them and us, right? This three-way, right? It just becomes this joyous occasion when we add more people into this, that joy abounds. And so this hour is an inclusive, all of our joy increases so that our joy may be complete when you come into this fold. So what can we take away from this lesson? We've, we've gone through a lot of different things, a lot of history, didn't go through a lot of the word, but that's really a lot that's in that four verses right there. So what can we take away from this? First of all, it's really important that we realize some of the history here. This is written by John. It's written by John later in life in Ephesus to the younger generation, warning against this different mindset of false teachers. Again, not the Judaizers. No, no, no. We're pointing out and pushing against the this Gnostic mindset, this, this polytheistic and searching for these hidden meanings, trying to make things fit that aren't necessarily there. Okay. Warning about that. So he's writing to that younger generation. We also have seen and we're learning that our joy comes from and is in God. And John is writing this for joy, right? He's not writing it just so he has joy in writing. He's writing it so that you can have joy and that we can have joy and that God enjoys this as well. Okay. We also see that Jesus is the word of God. He is the word of life. He was before creation and all things were created through him and that he physically came as a real person. <coughs> Excuse me. Whew. Tickle in the throat. Allergies. Gotta love it. But he physically came as a real person. He's pointing out and saying, hey, this is real. This is not just an intellectual game. This is a real thing. And God really physically came in real life. And he's pointing that out and he's pointing it out saying, hey, I was there. Grandkids, I was there. That's what he's saying, right? Now he's also saying and, and that we are to have fellowship with one another and with God through Jesus. Okay, these are these are the things that we should be taking away from this, right? All right, let's let's pray. Oh God, thank you so much again for today, for this week. God, I thank you for everything that's going on, and even though I don't understand it, 
even though we don't understand it. We don't know what's going on in the world. It's, it's a crazy, crazy time right now. But we trust you. And our faith is in you. And we know that in you, you are perfect. You do not make mistakes. We know this. And our faith and our trust is solely in you. And we know and that our trust is in you, that we're going to be okay, and that the body is going to be okay, and that the world is going to be okay, and everything is going to happen in your timing that you are going to provide. And so, God, we just ask, and we lift up this world, and we lift up the sick, God. We ask that your protection, your hand be upon them, your hand of healing be upon them, that your hand of healing be upon this entire world. And that your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness be upon this world, Lord. Redeem this. Use whatever is going on right now, God, for your glory. Build the body up. Have us be that shining light and that shining beacon into the world as to how to live through this. How to live for you. God, just continue to be with the body. We love you and thank you. Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you for being here. This was a lot of fun, at least for me. I hope you guys uh, got some things out of it, like seeing the comments, loving learning the history and enjoying the history of the scripture. Thank you guys so much for that. Uh, have a great Saturday a great rest of the weekend with your family and uh, just continue on, continuing on. And we will be here. Same bat time, same bat channel. That is 8.30 a.m. Saturday morning in Mountain Time. Not saying mountain time is better than your time. It's just the time I'm in. So, uh, but we will see you then next Saturday for continuing on in the study of first James. Or excuse me, first James. Wow, first John. It's a morning. I need more coffee. We'll talk to you guys later.